thunder from the left in Mexico about that country's elections. But it's not enough to shift the electoral tide. The details coming up on Latin Pulse. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we're back from Mexico and in our Washington, D.C. studios again, still absorbing the impact of those elections. We'll have an in-depth interview about Mexico later, and we'll also check in on the electoral campaign in Venezuela. Our recent incidents there, a warning to the media. But first, Lydia Bayoud has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. A vote recount for Mexico's presidential office is underway this week following elections last weekend, which appeared to favor Enrique Peña Nieto. Peña Nieto is the candidate of the powerful Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, which governed Mexico for more than 70 years. His main competitor, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, representing the political left, is contesting the electoral decision over what appear to be voting irregularities across the country. Fue eh, avasallador eh, el comportamiento. The behavior of the government apparatus was overwhelming. The Federal Electoral Institute has registered over 3,000 incidents at polling places, many, many of them in the state of Mexico. López Obrador still has not conceded defeat as votes are being recounted at more than half of polling stations according to Mexico's electoral body. Results are expected later this weekend. López Obrador also contested Mexico's last presidential election when he ran against current president Felipe Calderón. Peña Nieto has already been speaking to the national and foreign press about his agenda for Mexico. He says he will have the number of kidnappings and murders due to cartel violence during his term as president. A car bomb exploded in Ciudad Victoria, the capital of the Mexican state of Tamaulipas, on Tuesday. Its target appeared to be the home of a top security official in the state. The explosion killed two police agents and injured seven police and civilians. This was the second car bomb in a week in Tamaulipas, coming just two days after Mexico's presidential elections. The previous car bomb exploded Friday near City Hall in Nuevo Laredo, just across the border from Laredo in Texas. Seven were injured in that blast. Tamaulipas borders the state of Texas and has been the scene of violent clashes between rival drug cartels. Armando Montaño, a 22-year-old American journalist with the Associated Press, was found dead in an elevator shaft in Mexico City this week. Montaño had been working as an intern with the AP in Mexico City since June. He was a member of both the National Association of Hispanic Journalists and the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association. He had recently covered the shooting of three federal policemen at Mexico City's international airport. Authorities say they are currently investigating his death and Montaño's parents are in Mexico City to pursue the investigation. There is no word as yet on whether Montaño's death was related to his work or sexual orientation. Mexico is one of the world's most dangerous countries for journalists. More than 40 journalists have been killed or disappeared in Mexico since 2006, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. 
Xiomara Castro de Zelaya, the spouse of former Honduran President Manuel Zelaya, announced this week her intention to run for president in the 2013 elections. Castro de Zelaya will be the sole candidate for the newly approved Partido Libertad y Refundación, or Libre Party. The party was formed after President Zelaya was ousted in a military coup in 2009. Manuel Zelaya is prohibited from running for president by the Honduran constitution. Public opinion polls currently place Castro de Zelaya second after Salvador Nasrallah, a popular television presenter with the anti-corruption or PAC party. Two former leaders of Argentina's military junta have been found guilty of the systematic theft of hundreds of babies of political prisoners. A court in Buenos Aires sentenced Jorge Videla and Renaldo Bignon to 50 and 15 years, respectively, for their roles in orchestrating the kidnapping operation. Human rights advocates say at least 400 babies were taken from their parents who were being tortured and killed in detention centers. Videla and Bignon are already serving life sentences for crimes they committed during Argentina's military rule from 1976 to 1983. More than 13,000 people died during Argentina's so-called dirty war, according to official records. Venezuelan broadcaster Globovision TV has agreed to pay a $2.1 million fine as a penalty for its coverage of a prison riot last year. The company was contesting the fine, but agreed to pay after the Supreme Court ordered Globovision's assets to be seized for more than three times the original fine. Globovision says the fine was unfair and disproportionate. Free press advocates have likewise said the Venezuelan government is using the fine to stifle the media. The government levied the fine for what it called media bias in the channel's coverage of a prison riot outside Caracas that left 20 people dead. The government said the coverage incited violence and hatred. President Hugo Chavez has also accused the channel of supporting a coup attempt to overthrow him in 2002. Chavez begins campaigning this Sunday for re-election to a third term. The vote will be held on October 7th. Mercosur approved Venezuela's membership into the South American trading bloc, while at the same time suspending Paraguay's membership over the recent ousting of Paraguayan President Fernando Lugo. The timing of the induction of Venezuela has raised some questions about the legality of the decision. While Lugo had supported Venezuela's inclusion, many members of the Paraguayan government opposed it because of their view of Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez as anti-democratic. Membership decisions require unanimous approval under Mercosur rules, and with Paraguay suspended from the proceedings, the summit's decision avoided any possible veto by Paraguay's representatives. Venezuela joins Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay, while Paraguay is temporarily suspended. Argentine President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner has declared that Paraguay's suspension will remain in effect until a democratic process allows for popular sovereignty to be restored. Venezuela's inclusion will be ratified July 31st. For Latin Pulse, I'm Lydia Bayoud. Thanks, Lydia. As we heard, Mexicans held a thoroughly modern election this week, complete with real-time results on Google and the ability of voters to cast a ballot at various convenience store chains, including 7-Eleven. To recap, Enrique Peña Nieto of the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, is Mexico's president-elect. His closest challenger, Andres Manuel López Obrador of the left-wing Democratic Revolutionary Party, or PRD, lost by about six percentage points. But a recount is underway, and allegations of corruption and voter fraud are mounting. During our time in Mexico after the election, we turned to José Pepe Carreño, a correspondent from Mexico's Excelsior, to give us some context, especially about corruption 
and politics. Here are excerpts from our on-location interview and one advisory note. You might hear Mexico City's busy Avenida Chapultepec in the background. Is the left going to admit that they lost this election? And two, what is their asking price for working with the PRI going forward? Okay, I think that the left has no choice but to. Uh, they might complain about the uh, inequity of the elections, they may complain about the PRI buying votes, etc., etc. But the problem is that, uh, yes, in Mexico City, the left has a history of buying votes, the left has a clientele, the left just plays that game as well as the PRI. Because, the, let's say, the clientele or the patronage system that they were using is the same that they inherited from the PRI. Remember that they splintered. So that the part of them splintered from the PRI. So that is the same system of patronage. There are, so that is one point. Second point, uh, these were in many ways the most watched elections in Mexican history. I mean, you can allege conspiracy, yeah, whatever you want, but you have three million people in, in Inside the, the polling booths, there is obviously there is always a chance that uh, somebody may or may pull out something in the in one or two, but it's not exactly easy. I mean, it would be very difficult. Third, uh, everybody is. Uh, if if you remember Saturday Sunday, uh, probably everybody was so worried about what would be the role of the left. And I do not think that, yes... Uh, and there know, was Machiavelli, a peaceful protest in the Zocalo. Yeah, yeah. But everybody uh, everybody knows that Machiavelli says that the, the prince should be feared. But you cannot fear when you have 63% of the country against you, or 65% of the country against you. I mean, there is a limit for one. What can you do? And the difference... So, made, in other words, Peña Nieto doesn't have a mandate. No, he has, a bare, again, a qualified victory. Again, and uh, Lopez Obrador might have had a very qualified victory. Also, it's uh, there was no, no, there was not a big, 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 a dominant winner. So Lopez Obrador has to be careful about how he plays his cards, because again, you have Lopez Peñarito has what sixty-three percent of the country against him, but Lopez Obrador was seventy percent of the country against him. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the. Yes, uh, the PRD candidate? No, it's he's not a PRD candidate. He's a, the I think he's the leading figure nowadays on the Mexican left. He created a coalition of parties, the first with two small parties, the Partido del Trabajo, and the, the Movimiento the Ciudadano, party. Citizens, Citizens Movement. Movement, and then the PRD didn't have any choice but to support him. But they were not in the best uh, of, of uh, terms among them. But as we've talked about in the past, the left in Mexico right now is very fractured, fractious, fighting amongst themselves. Can he change that? Going He's forward? the figure that can make it. He is the figure. He, I mean, He's, uh, if he, by force, by will, by uh, whatever, he has been able to help together a coalition that is very fractious. Now, his work could be to create a serious movement that put all of them together in real terms. 
but that's a lot of work. Mexican left, as any left in history, is extremely, extremely fractious and extremely, extremely, extremely uh, selfish, to put to put that way. I mean, the leaders of each small group believe that they are owners of the truth. It's a very interesting thing because there is a lot of people who was afraid of the return of the PRI, the old PRI. And yes, the part of the PRI that won is old PRI. However, the reality is the country is not the same and the conditions are not the same. The PRI won with about 37 to 40% of the vote. The recounting is still on, on, uh, uh, going on. Uh, which is not a, obviously it's not a, not a majority, it's a plurality in the best case. It has the same percentage in the Senate and the House of Representatives, which means that for to govern, they would have to convince a lot of people in from the parties that they dropped already. They they will have to convince and negotiate a lot of people. Of course, the PRI moving in the center has better possibilities to make a coalition with the right, the PAEN in some cases, and the left, the PRD in some other cases. So it's going to be a very interesting uh, situation. That isn't best, the best scenario. In, other, uh, in the worst, there will be a stalemate that will uh, keep Mexico used uh, in while for the next six years. And this has been the problem over the past 12 years is that Mexico has been in more or less a political stalemate. The PRI, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, this is the party that won. We have Enrique Peña Nieto, will be the next president of Mexico. But during the campaign, not much came from Peña Nieto about exactly what's going to happen in his governing style of Mexico. He'll also have the challenge of no pre-president before has ever had to negotiate with Congress. It's a more powerful Mexican Congress than it's ever been. What happens? No. How does that go forward? We, that is a tall order. Everybody, everybody would love to know that, what, what is going to happen. The advantage, his advantage, and the PRI advantage again, is that they position themselves at the center, and that they are ruthless, they are smart, they are... Uh, if nothing, if nothing else, they have been able to handle better the, its divisions, so they have the chance to get in communications uh, either the left or the right. Now, having said that, they are also, uh, uh, let's say that they can handle better uh, the ways to corrupt people and the ways to convince people to, uh, co to collaborate with one or another. Now, it's going to be a, a very interesting issue because now about a third of the Congress, maybe more than a third of the Congress will be in the left, about a quarter of the Congress will be on the right, and they themselves, uh, the left has now a historic opportunity of, organi of organizing itself and uh, push forward and maybe winning the elections in, in 2016. 2018, I'm sorry, in uh, terms of the right, they have to be this, uh, I'd say, constructive opposition. I mean, they have to be uh, a watcher, they have to be a, a watching dog, if you want to put it that way, but at the same time, they have to demonstrate that they can play 
when they, in the in benefit of the country that has been part of its problems while government. So I think we'll see a lot of negotiations. Everybody has their own needs and the needs to negotiate with each other. I, I want to get back to the role of the parties and the fallout from this election in the parties and what you just described is the traditional role of the PAN, the National Action Party, the conservatives. That's the role they used to play in the old days. In and they did it very well, actually. The difference is that then they had this behemoth called the PRI that controlled everything or almost anyth- everything in Mexico. Uh, and this time, their PRI, uh, they face a PRI which is sort of very more cohesive, maybe much more of a political party in the traditional sense, but at the same time diminished relatively in terms of uh, its dominance. So if you have a Congress which is 40%, let's say 40% PRI, 30 to 32% left, 25% on the right, uh, you, have, you face a very different situation. What, what can we look forward to in policies that the PRI may put forward in these next few years that Pien Nieto may be dealing with? Are there any concrete policies? Look, I think that you will, we will see if uh, he can make it a reform about uh, energy production. He might open part of the Mexican oil industry or energy industry. So privatizing for, for Pemex to some not extent. Not necessarily privatizing Pemex. Maybe more in the sense, okay, Pemex stays the way it is, but the gas industry, which might be, by right, would be for Pemex, might receive uh, some... Uh, foreign money and expertise output. Maybe something like the arrangements of uh, Petrobras in Brazil about uh, the exploration in deep waters, etc. I mean, they, 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 he will have to negotiate that also. Whatever is his project now, he will have to negotiate it. Uh, we m- might have to see, might see maybe uh, financial reform also that but he will have to negotiate also. Labor reform, he will have to negotiate. So what the final form of those reforms may have will depend a lot on how able he is for to shape the, the negotiations and those uh, and, and the form of, the, of those reforms. He might have to keep going the, the, the war on drugs, if nothing else, for, for one reason. Even if he wanted to negotiate right nowadays, even if that were truth, he, as the state, he has to recover the role of the state as the dominant player. And for that, he has to drop the cartels before proposing them. Okay, I drop you, I showed you that I have the capability to destroy you. Now, let's let's talk. So, but, but this is that what President Calderon tried for six years to prove to the cartels that he could destroy them, and he couldn't. Yes, but the, 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 the difference is that uh, Calderon's strategy was to destroy the cartels all at the same time. Uh, he was, was just trying to destroy the cartels. Then the strategy varied and it was to uh, keep to try to keep them fighting among each other. Now the strategy is, or maybe if uh, history is a president, to start with one cartel and demonstrate the others that yes, I can wipe you out. So now let's talk. Was, isn't this the Fox strategy that he tried with the Tijuana cartel and 
moved on from there, and that also was not successful. Well, yes and no, it's not successful. The cartel is still there. Nobody's going to be able to destroy the cartels. Now, what happened is that you have to have first cartels that are not a threat to society. I mean, they're a threat to society by definition, but they're not dominant groups. They are not a threat to local government. They are not a threat to, to, to society. They are not a challenge for the federal government. Uh, and in Tijuana, I mean, either by fear, by force, or by negotiation, the violence in Tijuana has been reduced radically in the last few years. Now, I that may be a fluke, but uh, it's a fluke that they might love to repeat in the rest of the border. I don't want to sound too negative. But some would argue we're here in Mexico City, perhaps the safest city in all of Mexico, but that truly the national government may only control 50% of the country at this point. Uh, the, uh, let, let put it this way. The, you're, you're perfectly right. But then again, the national government has to recover the ability to and its presence in most of the country. That is, I think that that is... Uh, the kind of challenge that everybody knows that the next president will have to face. And that was, would have been the same with Peña Nieto, the same with López Obrador, the same with Josefina, or with Cuadri. I mean, that is, that is a non-partisan task, is the, reco the recovery of the country, the recovery of the government's role in the country. And that is a non-negotiable item. Well, thank you, Jose Pepe Carreño of Excelsior, one of Mexico's oldest newspapers. Thank you for joining us. Rick, it's always a pleasure. I want to finish school. And then go to college. To be able to graduate. And have the future my parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Not so long ago, Vanessa Jesus Gonzati was anchoring the news on this program. Now she's a reporter for Venezuelan newspaper Tal Qual in Caracas, Venezuela. Vanessa, welcome back to Latin Pulse. Hi, thank you. <laughs> As you might be able to hear, Vanessa is joining us today via Skype. We heard earlier in the program about the large fine levied by the Venezuelan government against Globovision, the only remaining TV network that's critical of the government of Hugo Chavez. With this fine coming at the beginning of the electoral campaign, do folks in the media see this as a message? Well, um, Globovision has always had very large tensions with the government for many, many years. So the tensions have always been worse with uh, broadcast media. With newspapers, it's, um, there's been tension, sometimes more than others, especially when times are very, very polarized. But with Global, it's really an ongoing thing because since um, 2007, when RCTV uh, was, some people call it shut down, some other people call it, it was just not, the concession was just not renewed. Um, it's really the only network that is very critical of the government. It's the only one, but it, it is very critical of the government. And um, so, I mean, it has a, people follow it, people who are very much for the opposition 
And, uh, you know, if it's, it's the kind of thing that a government's not very happy with. And, uh, you know, the, the media here tends to be very polarized, especially broadcast media. Have you seen a shift in how Globovision is reporting on the elections or reporting in the government since this fine, since they agreed to pay the fine? Um, not really. Not really. Um, because it, it's also sort of a, an honor thing to sort of keep reporting how they're reporting uh, and not, you know, they, they consider it to lower their heads if they actually change how they, how they portray things. And um, there really is also a lot to cover right now because there is a candidate, which is uh, Enriquez Capriles-Radonsky. And, you know, they just launched the campaign, both President Chavez and Capriles-Radonsky just launched their campaigns officially last Sunday. So there really is a lot to cover on the opposition side. And, uh, you know, they still they are very critical of the government. Give us an idea of how the media in general are covering the campaign. Do you feel it's free and open? Is there any mood for self-censorship because of the fine? Um, I think there's there has been self-censorship for a while, not only because of the fine, because it's, maybe not, the, it's not the first time. I mean, the fine was um, about something that happened last year during the uh, prison riots. So, and be, even before that, there was already tension with Vision and there was the, the issue with RCTV in 2007. So there has been self-censorship for a while. I wouldn't say that because of this fine now, people were just mostly upset. People who like Vision or people who dislike President Chavez, basically, were just very upset about it being one more thing that's happening. It's not really the thing that will change everything. It's just sort of, oh, here, here he goes again, attacking the media kind of thing. Uh, but I wouldn't say that there has been more self-censorship since then. Uh, people, journalists are still a little bit afraid when they speak about President Chavez, especially depending on what kind of media they are. If the media is very well known, they'll be a little bit more afraid. Uh, not so much of being you know, incarcerated like in other countries, but um, the, there can be consequences, you know, very subtle ones. There can be... Is there some discussion about President Chavez's health in the campaign at all? The pictures we've seen show him to be fairly healthy and vital as mm -hmm. he's often been in the past. Yes, I would say that that's not really the controversial issue anymore. I'm not sure if it will be again, but uh, it really has shifted. It, it no longer is the main thing. Uh, when he launched the campaign, he looked very, very healthy. Um, he spoke yesterday. Uh, we had a holiday in small independence, and he just seems um, like himself again. So, I mean, there has been controversy for the, for the past year and all that, but I don't really think that right now that's going, that's going to be the main issue for the campaign. What do you see as the issues in the campaign that have been discussed the most? Well, um, just recently, during the month of June, President Chavez talked about crime and insecurity for the very first time which people had criticized for years that he hadn't talked in any of his speeches, and he talks a lot. So um, basically, I think both, yeah, crime and economics are the main things on people's minds, and, you know, their pockets and just their their physical well-being. It's a, You know, here they have the um, express kidnapping, and that's been a practice that has gone on for many, many years, and it just seems to be getting worse. And, you know, even just mugging and 
things like that, but it can escalate to something much worse. So it's it's really what people care about. People keep talking outside Venezuela, especially about Hugo Chavez, but people just want somebody who will fix or help fix uh, these two issues, which are the main ones here. Do Chavez or Capriles have any specifics that they give for how they'll address that crime situation? They both have some plans, but I think, um, sadly, um, they're, they, the way they show their message is going to be more powerful than the exact plan they have. It's a lot about charisma, so we'll see how people react to the plans. And Chavez is still the king when it comes to the charisma meter in Caracas. He still is. We might have a surprise, but he still is. Well, thank you very much, Vanessa Jesus Gonzati of Talquo, joining us today on Latin Pulse from Caracas via Skype. Thank you very much, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse. Also, all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook, or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, associate producer Lydia Bayoud and announcer Victor Kilo. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. The program is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.